Hello, and welcome to the all-new Shakespeare and Company podcast with me, Adam Biles, literary director here at the bookshop. If you enjoy these conversations and would like to spend even more of 2022 at Kilometre Zero in Paris, you can now subscribe for just three euros a month. For that, you'll get regular bonus episodes, hand-picked classic interviews from our archives, as well as early access to complete chapters from friends of Shakespeare and Company, Read Ulysses. You can now sign up directly in Apple Podcasts or for users of all other podcast apps through Patreon. Links to both are available in the show notes. All money raised through these subscriptions goes to supporting Friends of Shakespeare and Company, the bookshop's non-profit, created to fund our non-commercial activities, from the Upstairs Reading Library to the Writers in Residence programme to our charitable collaborations and our free events. We're very grateful for your support. As Arthur Snell points out near the beginning of his new book, How Britain Broke the World, 1997 was one of the most peaceful years of the entire 20th century. Which is why, since then, it has been bewildering to watch the world not become increasingly democratic and peaceful, but instead to teeter through war after war, crisis after crisis, all the way up to the Russian invasion of Ukraine this past February, when, as Snell writes, the unsteady rules-based international order finally collapsed. One overlooked aspect of the events of these two decades, and the subject of Snell's book, is the role, one might say outsized role, that Britain specifically played in these crises. Not principally, Snell argues, through outright malevolence, but rather a combination of institutional incompetence, hubris and short-termism, with perhaps a little corruption thrown in. This new angle on global politics, written by someone whose work meant they were deeply embedded in many of these crises, makes How Britain Broke the World one of the most engaging, authentic and original analyses I've read of events of the last quarter century. In addition to being the author of How Britain Broke the World, Arthur Snell is a former British diplomat who worked in Iraq and Afghanistan and was head of the international section of the UK's anti-terrorist programme Prevent. He is also the host of the podcast Doomsday Watch, which began by drawing on his experience to explore the geopolitical threats of tomorrow and retooled in the face of the Russian invasion to be one of the go-to places for in-depth analysis of the conflict. Arthur Snell, welcome to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. Thank you for having me. Um, Where I'd like to begin, uh, I guess, is by giving our listeners the the full title of your book so the full including the the subtitle so we have how britain broke the world war greed and blunders from kosovo to afghanistan 1997 to 2021 um i'm curious about your starting point here because obviously when sort of writing about the the british influence in in the world one could date that back to you know for example the beginning of colonialism yeah. or the 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 changing of britain's role after world war 2 for example and the, and the and the sort of post colonial period so could you talk a little bit about why for you 1997 felt like the moment to tell the story you wanted to tell yeah there are two reasons there the first is a slightly trivial one which is that my own career in the foreign service began a year later in 98 mm. So that was very much a, a period that I had direct uh, familiarity with. But as, as I say clearly in the book, it's not a memoir. This is, um, you know, and sort of analytical account uh, based on, on a whole wide range of sources. But I think so what's more significant is the moment 1997 and those that remember it clearly will remember Tony Blair being elected, the new Labour government, an enormous sense of possibility, of hope, mm. of... Britain being a global leader, but in a way that was new. We were cool Britannia. We were coming to the rescue in Kosovo. We were, you know, proudly signing up to various sort of human rights uh, instruments that that had perhaps been avoided in earlier years. And so I think 
it's it's that sense of being at a high point and and as you mentioned in the introduction at a time when the world was comparatively peaceful the cold war was over um uh, some people talk about the happy 90s so it, it it's a period of history that feels very optimistic and and sort of positive and then quite quickly mm-hmm. uh, stumbles downhill and and of course people focus very heavily on the 9/11 attacks as a turning point but i think what i see slightly differently is the significance of Kosovo, because whilst Kosovo was framed as this big humanitarian intervention, and it was definitely Blair's war, Kosovo was very much uh, a campaign that Blair sort of spearheaded as as the arguably the preeminent democratic uh, leader of that time. Mm -hmm. But actually, Kosovo, in its own way, began this fracturing of the international order, as, as I explore in the book. Yeah, we'll come on to Kosovo in a moment. Um, I'd just like to pick up on the point you said, you know, it's not a memoir and it's certainly not. But I do think it is important uh, to talk a little bit about your background, as I mentioned yeah. in the introduction, because I think a lot of books which, and this is being very reductive to say this, but which might be seen as broadly critical of Britain uh, on the role that Britain played, might tend to be written by uh, people who have not necessarily been involved in the British uh, establishment, who have not necessarily served Britain uh, in the way that you had. So as I mentioned, you've been, uh, you were, you were a dip- diplomat from the late 1990s until, until 2014. Yeah. And so you have this firsthand experience of uh, a lot of this policy, which you are, which you are critiquing. When you decided to write this book, did you feel that that gave you a certain perhaps moral or intellectual authority to talk about these events in a way that somebody sort of, one might say, sniping from the outside might might not have? Possibly. I, I think there's, there's, a, there's a risk with a book like this that it is mistaken for a sort of um, politically tende- tendentious attack on Britain mm-hmm. uh, from someone who perhaps either feels uh, personally um, somehow sort of excluded from, from the way that the, the country uh, you know, runs its foreign policy, or or perhaps has 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 personally suffered, and of course, people who who perhaps have you know that they they have experience of colonialism or something like that. I completely understand why that would potentially affect their their outlook. So, from my perspective, as 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 you outlined there, yes, I I came into this as somebody who'd been a British diplomat, as somebody who bluntly. Uh, you know, might be said to be coming from a sort of a fairly sort of privileged background. Um, and, you know, the Foreign Office, particularly in the late 90s, was still largely recruiting white men, uh, mm-hmm. privately educated who'd been to fancy universities. And, and you know, that 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 was my case, too. So I think, um, you know, I'm I'm not I'm not sort of a, a, a political activist mm-hmm. uh, at all. And and one perspective that that gives me perhaps is this sense that a lot of the mistakes that were made were probably not made for cynical sort of zero sum reasons uh but ultimately it, that's not an excuse you know we still have to recognize what we've done as a country and then think about how we might do it better in the future mm-hmm. that's one of the things i found fascinating which i'm sure we'll come on to speak about later is this sense of sort of not pinning fault necessarily on one particular person or one particular action, but this very kind of systemic failure uh, and sort of increasingly sort of a snowballing failure through uh, throughout the last um, couple of decades. But yeah. let's let's talk specifically about about Kosovo um, as a starting point. And at the moment, you very strikingly describe the Kosovo intervention as a failure that looked like a success. 
And I found this fascinating because I was um, a, a few, I'm a few years younger than you, but I was studying politics in like the late 19s, early 2000s. Yeah. And I remember this kind of doctrine of this new doctrine, in a sense of liberal interventionism being taught kind of almost quite sort of breathlessly as something quite sort of exciting and new and, um, and a very sort of positive sort of expeditionary thing that Britain was, was, was bringing to the world. Um, and I guess in a sense, was that, was that how it felt to you at the time? Yes, I, I think I shared that. So whilst I I wasn't at all personally involved with with the Kosovo campaign professionally, although I you know I was in in service at the time, um, I think that there was this view that that Britain could bring you know its its potential, its capabilities, and this is a point I make in the book. We we shouldn't talk the country down. We we are uh, a fairly large country with a fairly large military and a lot of other influential levers that we can pull. And so at that time, Britain seemed to be, with, with Tony Blair, as I've mentioned, as this very charismatic, highly effective communicator, seemed to be bringing a new type of humanitarian intervention, sometimes called liberal interventionism, um, to the table. But And, and Kosovo, uh, in, you know, because it comes before 9-11, is that sort of pre-lapsarian case study. Um, but I think it's one that when you start to examine it in a bit more detail, that there are, um, you know, serious flaws in the model, which, of course, later on become glaringly obvious. Mm. And I guess one of those flaws um, was the, I guess, the, the the failure to consider the, the let's say, the wider geopolitics of um, the Kosovo intervention and particularly the the impact that such a such an act would have on on Russia. Um, and, and it, it was weird sort of reading this because I suppose, you know, the, as, as, as the years go by, sort of history contracts. But in a way, this was less than a decade after the, the collapse of the Soviet Union. And it was fascinating to, to suddenly have that realisation of how little consideration was given to the, the impact that such an effect might, you know, in an area, sort of the sphere of influence of our former, let's say, you know, enemy in the Cold yeah. War. Give such little consideration seem to be given to how such an intervention might affect geopolitics at, at, on that level. Indeed. And I think, again, you know, it, it's interesting because, of course, now we're all rightly rather obsessed with Russia and, and the threat that it poses. But at that time in the late 90s, Russia, bluntly, was was seen as a bit of a joke. You know, it, mm-hmm. it, it had had Boris Yeltsin, who was literally a drunkard as president. Uh, its economy was in chaos. Uh, it was not taken seriously, um, and therefore its interests and concerns were not taken seriously. Mm-hmm. And and of course, um, that doesn't mean uh, to say all that doesn't mean that therefore we should do what Russia wants now or back in 1999. Uh, but like any consideration in foreign policy, and this is something I say in the book, everything is connected. So if if you do act in a way that Russia finds to be humiliating. Uh, and and disregarding of its interests in 1999, you shouldn't be surprised if in 2014 people are still talking about that. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so to the so you know the, the the question I guess of intervention is yeah. you know it has its own you know it has its own moral considerations, but it also has it, it, its practical considerations. And one of the things that you go into for the different crises that you talk about, it's not just the fact that Britain was involved in these crises. But that Britain's involvement seemed to go so badly 
in a way. Yeah. <laughs> like there's, there's a sort of perceived sense of competence and uh, expertise in Britain, which doesn't seem to to transpire in Kosovo or later in Iraq or, yeah. or Afghanistan. Um, now, one of the uh, elements that you identify as part of this, it seems to be a kind of a systematic underfunding of the uh, of the of the foreign office and yes. of, of, of the diplomatic service. Um, just to be clear, because I wasn't exactly sure I picked this up from the book. When did that sort of underfunding really start? Was it something that has been the case for sort of decades and decades before this, or was it something that maybe accelerated, you know, through uh, during Thatcher Major, or was it Blair? Um, I think it it's something that the Britain has always had a fair a, a, relative to its size, a fairly small foreign office. But the the relative underfunding uh, starts during the Blair era and then really sort of takes off uh, l- later on um, at towards the end of the Blair era and into Brown and then Cameron and the austerity era. And of course, the irony of this, you know, all all special interests will argue that you know whatever they're into needs more money, and I, and I, I accept that as a as a challenge, but. Uh, diplomatic services are incredibly cheap. Uh, mm-hmm. They may not seem so because embassies are often in fancy parts of towns, and you know, <laughs> ambassadors have have expensive cars. But actually, uh, a, a, an embassy is just an office full of people. Mm-hmm. Um, almost all other sorts of um, you know international engagement, particularly military, but also you know trade issues, uh, are are you know immensely costly by comparison. Mm-hmm. So I think um, it. It, there are there are all kinds of false economies constantly being made with diplomatic services so that we get to stage now i think that this is quoted in the book that the um the uh, the, the the british diplomatic service now has a budget equivalent to i think kent county council right, yeah. or, or one day of the nhs um mm. and of course you know it it it's uh, we shouldn't spend as much as we spend on the nhs of course we shouldn't we shouldn't even think of doing that but we might want to spend a little bit more than mm. one 365th yeah 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 there seems to be a kind of uh, politics at work here um i guess maybe it was particularly the case under the uh in the blair and brown governments mm. this idea of the sort of the the face of the diplomatic service as you said earlier is often kind of white privately educated male and so to be in, in a sense it's sort of something which looks easy to cut in a way like there's not going to be any sort of necessarily uh difficult headlines yeah when it, you cut it and yeah. yet at the same time britain has continued to want to sort of exert its power and influence on the world stage and doesn't seem to find those two positions incompatible. No, and that's a really odd thing. And so, I mean, it's 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 always worth making a comparison with France, not just because of where, right. where you are, Adam. But, you know, the French diplomatic service is much bigger. Mm-hmm. They spend a lot more on it. And, you know, the, the, the relative to the cost of the French state, of course, it's still nothing in particular because, uh, as I mentioned, diplomatic services relative to overall national budgets aren't very significant. Um, but ultimately, uh, diplomacy is a long-term game. Mm-hmm. It requires long-term expertise and it requires long-term relationships. And those are all things that don't respond very well to sort of year-to-year cuts and, mm-hmm. and you know, budget programs being being paired away or even being added to, but added to in a way that is on a very short-term basis that then doesn't allow for the gradual accretion of of influence. Mm -hmm. Just on the subject of France, it sort of always astonishes me how 
neglected sort of British soft power is, um, you know, cultural, whether that be through organizations like the British Council, which, you know, I know from uh, speaking to people who work there here has been stripped to the bone over the last like 10 or 15 years. And sort of the, the, the French would kill for the level of sort of yeah soft power and cultural yeah. influence that uh, yeah. that the british had through the bbc through the world service yeah. as well yeah. and it just seems from a from a slightly sort of internal external perspective yeah. that i have it just seems madness that as you say like the small amount that it would take to keep these things operational or you know particularly successful is is taken away indeed and and, and it is basically inexplicable british council and british and and bbc world service both of which were funded uh, or are funded through the Foreign Office's budget, as you rightly say, have been cut back and cut back year on year. And um, and any country, but certainly any medium-sized country with pretensions to global influence, would would kill for the uh, the level of credibility of sort of brand recognition mm-hmm. uh, that go with those two institutions. Just for example. Yeah. Uh, just coming back to uh, something you said earlier about the sort of uh, Kosovo being the kind of prelapsarian mm. uh, event, like before before 9-11. Um, is there an argument to be made that sort of this this doctrine of liberal interventionism, despite its sort of, uh, let's say, let's kindly say a- ambiguous results in Kosovo, was in some way sort of perverted or corrupted by the events of 9-11 and was essentially sort of used, whether by the uh the british but also the american government uh in a way that to the people who divided might never might never have envisaged oh definitely i mean i think if if you look at the the 911 attacks and and this is where it's important not to make everything about britain albeit that you know this this book is focused on it but if you look at the americans after the 911 attacks uh certain neoconservatives in the george w bush administration took advantage and and played to a wider political agenda but that but there's also a, a practical point that in a way um you know liberal interventionism uh may work as applied to a, a country in southeast europe uh mm-hmm. which is you know surrounded by other democratic countries uh and and is relatively small and geographically accessible but but the the same concept applied to a country such as Afghanistan or Iraq uh, is very clearly much more problematic. So I think mm-hmm. it's certainly the case that the the concept of liberal interventionism was sort of bolted onto uh, the war on terror, which was basically a, a national security, um, you know, military operation, which which, of course, had its own um, had its own shortcomings. Yeah. And indeed, at the moment, you quote um, Blair himself talking about like, uh, the the tests applying the tests of liberal interventionism to the decision to invade Iraq and saying that it was kind of a finely balanced decision, yeah. but that also raises the question, I guess, both political but also cultural, about you know wh- who decides what these conditions are, who decides whether these conditions have uh, have been met, and in a way, I guess that sort of the whole doctrine could be accused of a very kind of uh, Occident centric. Uh, view of the world with sort of, uh, in a sense, as, as, as did happen in 2003 and since, like this idea of sort of the West wanting to impose its view of what was uh, what was right and correct on on the rest of the world. Indeed. And that's, again, that reflects, you know, we, we talked about some of the sort of positive elements of that era of the late 90s. But of course, there's another way of looking at it, which is that 
um, a small number of capitalist economies in the northwest of of you know of the globe um, decided that they had sort of you know reached the end of history and mm-hmm. and and they could tell the rest of the world how its life were you know would how its future would be and of course uh, the rest of the world as as to be fair to Fukuyama himself Francis <laughs> yeah. Fukuyama w- was still mired in history you know history yeah. was still happening uh and Most so, so in a red political philosopher yeah. of the last 20 years yes exactly um <laughs> and and um, I tried to be fair to him in the book because he's he 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 is as you say to a very misread but but um so, so I think that there is that element, which it, which is a very strong factor in in this discussion. The degree to which um, the the kind of the liberal interventionism was was always something that that was was a sort of uh, um, you know the West or however we want to define it, but effectively um, you know the NATO powers plus mm-hmm. its closest allies telling the rest of the world how the future would be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One one thing that comes up when um, thinking about Iraq is obviously this idea of you know the so called um, dodgy dossier of yeah. uh, of intelligence. And one of the things I particularly appreciated about your book was, I think it's the first time I've had a sort of a detailed understanding of how, uh, let's say, the the errors and the, uh, the sort of the the poor decisions connected to this intelligence yes. could sort of transpire. Could it essentially almost without any one person or group uh, being sort of explicitly uh, explicitly lying or explicitly yeah. falsifying things. It was almost like a sort of a a uh, sort of a hurricane of yes. <laughs> a yeah. perfect storm of factors Indeed. brought this uh, this intelligence to the surface. Yeah, and it, it's a bit like the sort of the Chinese whispers game. And again, you know, there are a lot of people um, uh, with, with you know in 2022 we'll say that tony blair lied about iraq and you know and, and he he should be condemned for that i i personally don't think that's fair at all I, you know he he reflected uh the intelligence that had been brought to him uh and let's not forget that if you're the british prime minister it's commonly said that you probably you have the world's best intelligence agency or one of the best mm-hmm. anyway the whole sort of the myth of james bond and mi6 <laughs> and so on um so uh it 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 it's it's too simplistic to say that Blair or you know you know some people talk about Alistair Campbell in the same context that those people somehow personally created these these stories which you know subsequently proved to be incorrect. As you say, it's a whole series of of kind of structural problems that that lead to what is poorly validated and badly assessed intelligence finding its way into the decision-making documents, not just of this country, but very importantly, the decision-making documents in the United States. Yeah. And that idea uh, of being the best, mm. uh, the best in the world, it's funny when you said it, it suddenly made me think of a lot of what um, sort of the rhetoric, if you could call it that, of sort of Boris Johnson and his cabinet during the early stages of the COVID oh, epidemic. Yeah. World so, beating. Uh, world beating exactly and it's sort of in a sense the fact that they were so ready to throw around that expression so willy-nilly when clearly so much of what they were doing wasn't world beating highlights a point which is maybe uh been sort of longer sort of brewing longer in the sort of the british uh psyche um which is this idea of sort of assuming uh for example mi6 was the the best intelligence service in the world, even if we are underfunding it, even if you know there are perhaps systemic failures which are you know which are perhaps being 
being covered up. And a lot of the, I guess, the other big beyond sort of institutional dysfunction. Yeah. One of the other big areas uh, you cover uh, in this book is this idea of, I guess, Britain's superiority complex yes. or it's sort of um, it's hubris and, and particularly in um, in Afghanistan. Right? Yeah. In the, would you be able to just talk a little bit about how that sort of manifested itself to uh, quite destructive results? Sure. Yes. Yeah. So so the the British intervention in Afghanistan is really something that happens uh, fairly late on. The Obviously, you had the initial uh, operation in Afghanistan immediately after 9-11, in which there was British involvement, special forces and so on, and which was remarkably successful in the narrow objective of removing the Taliban from power. Mm-hmm. And then uh, NATO sort of found itself, uh, as it were, in in charge of a country, not quite sure what it knew what it needed to do with it. Now, obviously, it wasn't NATO. Afghanistan had its own government after the Taliban fell. But um, as I explain in the book, In the light of the British military losing control of southern Iraq Mm -hmm. uh, and a a severe fall in its sort of credibility, particularly with the the Americans, the key ally, uh, there was this very strong desire in the British sort of national security community and particularly the military to show the Americans that we could still do this stuff. And we sort of talked ourselves into being sent to Helmand which is a vast area of Afghanistan. It's about the size of the Republic of Ireland, just to give people a sense of the scale. And, and thinking that with a few hundred frontline troops, we could, we could pacify and then build up the institutions of this huge, inhospitable uh, and difficult area. And we did that without having really any regard to the fact that one of the most uh, famous moments in Afghan history that one that if you're an Afghan and and sort of developing a sense of self-awareness of your own pride in your history the defeat of the British military at the Battle of Maiwand in 1880 is is one of the sort of really um is you know is, is one of the, the key uh moments in, in that sort of national uh history so so we blundered our way into Helmand with insufficient resources, with a belief that we had a special knowledge, thanks partly to our colonial history about counterinsurgency, and we had a special understanding of Afghanistan. Whereas, in fact, most Afghans said, if there's one country that should not be in southern Afghanistan, it's Britain, because there's mm-hmm. so much baggage there. So I think that's, that's a very good example of how uh, a sort of series of, of ideas about our own capability, our own history, our sort of self-regard, led us into something that turned out to be a, a disaster. And, and in the end, we had to bring in the Americans, just as we had in southern Iraq, to, to help us out. You don't go into this particularly in the book, but I'm just curious to um, to reflect on that because at the time it was um, uh, David Cameron, I think, yeah. during uh, that uh, the Helmland um, uh, mission. And then, of course, you know, Cameron was also involved in the, uh, in the Libya yeah. uh, intervention and the... Uh, the failure to intervene yeah. in Syria. Um, and of course, you know, we, we talk a lot about Cameron and Osborne and Johnson, this kind of, uh, the you know, raised on the, the playing fields of Eton kind of yeah. Uh, yeah. New, new, new ruling elite in Britain. How much of that attitude you just described do you think is attributable to the fact that perhaps our, our politics have become more narrowed class-wise over, what I say, our politics, I mean, British politics, over the mm. last let's say, uh, 20 or so years? It's a good question. Um, I, it seems uh, that 
certainly if, if you've had that sort of Eton and Oxford uh, background, or, or I mean, I think Osborne went to St. Paul's in London, but yes, yeah, so a highly, highly privileged, very elite sort of aristocratic type of background, you're probably quite imbued with this sort of very um, uh, sort of glorious uh, vision of British history. Um, but the odd thing about Cameron was that he he came into power to some extent trying to contrast himself with the Blair approach. You know, mm-hmm. Blair was already by 2010 seen as having messed up in Iraq, of having sort of overdone the interventions. Cameron very much uh, seeking to to, to plough a different furrow. And to be fair, the, he inherited the Afghan operation, right. but he initiated the Libya one. And so mm-hmm. there's an interesting thing that happens, I think, to any British prime minister, that when, when they sort of get the keys to number 10, uh, and they realise that they do have this country that has a nuclear deterrent, it has a permanent seat on the UN Security Council, it has a highly effective military. It, it may The military may have had its failures, but it still has a, you know, a highly professional... Uh, you know, core, uh, that I think that there's this sort of uh, desire to start using it, even if mm. you, you, you sort of told yourself that you're, that's not what you're going to do. And I think, yes, particularly if you, if you feel that you've got a sort of inherited uh, sense of being part of the ruling class, and clearly Cameron mm. does, uh, you're probably all the more likely to sort of slip into that almost without reflecting on it. And I suppose particularly if, as you point out in the book, there are sort of domestic political situations which perhaps you want to distract attention from as well. Um, so in, in Cameron's case at the time of the Libya intervention, there was the, the phone hacking um, yeah. scandal. And, and it's, it's interesting um, reflecting on this because, of course, it was Cameron and Sarkozy who really pushed the uh, intervention and the toppling of Gaddafi. And I remember it was quite early on in my time in France was when Gaddafi visited Right, France, and, and like pitched his tent in the gardens yeah. of the Elysee, yeah. and essentially, you know, for want of a better word, humiliated uh, Sarkozy and the sort mm. of the the demands that he made mm. of, um, of of France, and you know, mm. I think there was something about military contracts and things like that. Yeah, and it just it just struck me as really interesting to think that you had these two European leaders, both of whom had perhaps domestic reasons with which to. Uh, you know, particularly get involved. And then you had sort of, you know, Obama being a bit more sort of standoffish because, you know, he had quite the opposite, actually. He had very significant domestic uh, reasons not to get involved. Yes, absolutely. And certainly the the Libya episode is is clearly where the the thread of of British recent history and French, you know, comes together. And, And both Cameron and Sarkozy ended up going to Benghazi after what they believed had been a successful operation, Uh, and rather like President Bush, we all remember him with his mission accomplished moment on, on the U.S. warship. Uh, Cameron and Sarkozy paraded around Benghazi, cheering crowds, you know, and it's that classic uh, thing that I think, uh, you know, any any um, political leader can fall into. But it, but it's I think it happens particularly when you're in a foreign setting where you probably have less understanding of the dynamics that mm. you, 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 you know, the, the adulation goes to your head somewhat and you think you've you've done a wonderful thing and you've, you've freed Libya. And of course, you know, w- within a few months, Libya had descended into a, a civil war that is still ongoing. Mm-hmm. What, one of the things that's particularly striking as well, and this, this applies to um, almost sort of to the, the, the Syria conflict as much to mm. things like Brexit, is the sort of the, the ripples from British party politics 
into into the wider world or into you know, Britain's yeah. relationship with the wider world. So, I mean, I think probably most listeners will be aware of sort of, you know, Brexit could be quite easily framed as sort of the result of sort of internal mm. uh, or in one sense, the result of certain internal Conservative Party struggles. But the um, the the failure to intervene in in Syria and therefore the uh, essentially giving Russia a free pass to mm-hmm. uh, to to intervene and almost in a certain sense kind of rehearse um, the current war came about through sort of the the sort of shenanigans i guess is probably the, for want of a better word of the the british party political system yeah absolutely and funnily enough i think with syria that's something that that people have quite quickly forgotten and and you know syria in the book uh, i hope shows the reader that i'm not writing a book about why intervention is bad or wrong i think it's more mm-hmm. complicated than that and ironically we intervened in iraq because they were supposed to have had wmd and they didn't we intervened in Libya because there was supposed to be a massacre and there wasn't. And in Syria, they were using WMD to carry out massacres and we didn't intervene. Mm-hmm. But as, as you identify, the main reason for that was due to uh, the two party leaders at the time, Cameron, obviously prime minister, and Ed Miliband, who at the time was Labour leader. And, and many was ex- were expecting him to, to be prime minister quite soon. You know, the polls and everything were pointing in that direction. Uh, the, the two of them uh, both took a fairly similar approach but both sort of claimed that the other was being irresponsible and unreasonable. And they absolutely refused to meet on on the centre ground. And so as a result, uh, the British Parliament voted against uh, intervention overall, although actually a large majority of MPs voted for some kind of intervention. Uh, And by doing so, we pulled the rug from under Obama's feet and and also uh, from under the French as well. And so that was the end of a, a Western-led military intervention to, pretend, to, to, to put an end to Assad's attacks with chemical gas against his own population. And that was one of the, just the, just seeing the figures written like that, I found particularly striking was that, as you write, uh, 492 of Parliament's 650 MPs voted for taking military action. Yes. But because it was split between two very similar, but for, you know, political reasons, slightly divergent motions neither of them passed and the 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 intervention uh, didn't occur indeed which is yeah <laughs> so as i say seeing those numbers is so um, is so striking um staying with the sort of the british sort of political system i guess because mm. uh, i i did i used the word um corruption in mm. um in the in the introduction and i'm uh, i'm not i'm not sure you 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 explicitly describe it as uh, as corrupt in the book that was a little bit my my shorthand but one thing that uh, becomes increasingly clear is that the fact that britain operates as this kind of very loose financial center uh seems to whether that be from a russian perspective or from a saudi perspective uh seems to kind of let's say attract the uh the potential for, for for corruption to the to, to British politics. Absolutely. And one of the challenges about this, which I think is an element of corruption itself, is as you'll be well aware, uh, the libel laws in Britain are such mm. that anybody writing anything has to be incredibly careful, uh, even stating what appear to be established facts uh, can can gum you up in you know in in certain types of mm-hmm. libel tourism uh, from from you know well funded 
global uh, members of the global elite. Um, but you know, I, I I think corruption in in its broad uh, terms is is a reasonable um, is a reasonable description. What we basically do in Britain is we 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 have a a sort of offer to the world, which is you can come and do financial transactions of a diff of various different types in London, but also attached to that, and this is incredibly important, you can avail yourself of our offshore territories, which are a mm -hmm. sort of you know onshore offshore um, link up, and the offshore territories, which of course are, are the sort of the remains of the British Empire, uh, are all operating as as sort of mini countries, all with their own uh, jurisdiction but all uh, fundamentally under the British Supreme Court, which is what, what gives the investors the confidence to stick money in the Cayman or BVI and so mm -hmm. on. And that's an incredibly attractive offer to people who want to um, avail themselves of certain sorts of financial engineering. But of course, what it does is then brings in the influence of all kinds of dark money, dirty money, uh, straight into our into our politics, which which I think only in the context of Putin's invasion of Ukraine have people really started to grapple with what a what a negative aspect this is of of our society? Mm -hmm. This seems to be something um, which, for whatever reason, has increased in the period that you're you're talking about uh, in the book. So whether that be sort of the um, you know the buying up of vast swathes of London property by by yeah. Russian billionaires, for example, mm. it's it it. It seems that you know, London has been a, a financial centre and probably quite a sort of very corrupt financial centre mm. for, for generations. And yet there seems to be something over the last sort of 20 or so years, which has both sort of accelerated that process or or perhaps attracted people to, to use London who wouldn't have used it before. Well, I think that's right. I think that there are two uh, processes here. One is the... Um, is is what one might call sort of emerging market mm -hmm. uh, capital. Um, so Russia is a is a very good good example where you know Britain uh, whatever it saw politically in the kind of security policy aspects of its relationship with Russia also saw a huge opportunity of a country with immense natural resources and immense mm -hmm. uh, uh, wealth and and effectively sort of said. Put the politics on one side, Russia. If you want to come and bank here, buy our property, educate your children in our private schools, uh, and so on and so forth, uh, you're free to do so. Um, but I think there's another factor, which is that when you talk about how this has increased over time, yes, I think it's right. You know, Britain, as is well known, uh, its economy is highly dependent on services mm -hmm. uh, and financial services as, 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 as the largest element of that. You know, that's where we are different to France and Germany. We, we are less and less attached to manufacturing. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, our, our policies post-Brexit uh, demonstrate pretty clearly that we, we don't seem to have a vision for being a, a major agricultural country. So clearly, we are very focused on this type of industry. Uh, and then that means that you, you, you need to sort of keep the doors as wide open as you can. So it's not just Russian money. It might be Gulf money. It might be money from, uh, you know, resource-rich countries in Africa. In a way, the, the Brits are saying, we don't care where you're from. And mm. on the face of it, that sounds rather pleasant. You know, we're, we're open-minded. London's a great international city. You know, we, 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 we like cultural diversity. Well, that's all great. But we shouldn't be laundering the money of kleptocrats. And that's mm. something that we have become very good at doing.
Is is that in part connected to the um, the sort of short termism that you identify as well? The sort of because essentially Britain wants to continue being sort of a, a big small country, if you mm. like, or you know, small yeah. is maybe not a fair description, but a big medium sized country. Yeah. Uh, we need to rely on resources from other parts of the world. Perhaps in in the past we would rely on you know, resources that we would have exploited from our colonies yes. and to be this big, small country. Whereas now we we have to sort of rely on, yeah, on, on the Russians or the Saudis or, as you say, other other resource-rich uh, countries just to almost just to keep going, just to make it through the next kind of um, economic cycle in a way and for, to allow the government to be to be re-elected before, uh, you know, the economy crashes again. Well, I certainly think yes, that, that's right. That we, uh, if you have, um, if you have this very kind of loose, uh, you know, you might call it laissez-faire kind of economic policy. Effectively, the you know the the sort of Thatcher uh, neoliberal approach, which you know which persisted through the Blair era, and only, I mean, you know, David Cameron started talking about uh, sort of industrial planning and so on. But I think you know that. It's never taken terribly seriously because, again, it does require it requires long term commitment. It requires cross party consensus. You know, it it requires all kinds of things which are just not a feature of our current political system. Mm -hmm. And therefore, uh, it's always easier to say, well, you know, we're going to have a long term economic plan, which, after all, was something that George Osborne would often claim he had. But what you really have is you know a, a campaign to bring in as much Chinese investment as you can, uh, or or you know a loosening of certain regulations around listing shares so that Saudi Aramco might list its shares on your stock market and those yeah. sorts of things. Which again, uh, you it would be very easy to say, well, let's just think about the long term implications of this. Is it something we want to do? But there's no evidence that that happens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you mentioned you mentioned China there, and this is a, maybe a question that's a bit broader than. Um, than than what you cover in the book, but is there a question of sort of long term planning, perhaps not being something that modern Western liberal democracies are really designed for in a sense, because we have these electoral cycles of four or five years, that perhaps that's something which is almost anathema to the system as designed, or do you think that there's something about the kind of the current political class, perhaps the fact it's so adversarial? Adversarial means of like we it could be possible within our systems, but because we've become so adversarial, this kind of cross party consensus that you talk about, which might allow long term planning, is just impossible. Well, it it does seem it's clearly harder in a democracy because you've got parties and parties have interests, and no one is going to tell you know a, a given political party, well, you you can't discuss that. Whereas clearly in a in a autocratic system, none of those factors are in play. But, you know, something that that this isn't actually in the book, but I always remember it when I was working in Helmand, uh, we had the Danish military, they had quite a significant contribution there. And one day I was talking to one of my Danish colleagues about an incoming visit of British cabinet ministers. uh, And he said, well, presumably the opposition, uh, you know, are are coming at the same time. And I sort of looked a bit muddled. He said, well, in, in Denmark, whenever we do these visits, because we see our military commitment in Afghanistan as, as above party politics, uh, the, you know, that the foreign secretary and his shadow would travel at the same time. And that was just struck me as very, very interesting, because, uh, you know, we, we've all watched Borgen, and we've seen how they have these sort of consensus based politics. But there's no reason you wouldn't say that Denmark is any the less democratic for it. 
and and um, so there's, there's no reason why it can't happen in 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 a democratic system, but it certainly doesn't happen in our system. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, there are so many other things that you discuss in the book, which I mean, particularly the um, the chapters on India and also the special uh, relationship with America, I found particularly fascinating. And we may not have time to touch on that, so I will uh, encourage our listeners to uh, to seek out the book and to to check out those chapters. But I I don't want to uh, finish before talking about Brexit because that seems uh, in some way sort of unique among the uh, the crises that you cover in that mm. so many of them were sort of extraterritorial. They took place, you know, in, in far-flung lands, which however much the sort of general British public uh, might you know, express an interest and express sort of care in, yeah. ultimately the sort of the, the impact on their daily lives are not necessarily going to be to be that huge. Brexit, on the other hand, you know, is having an immediate dramatic, some might say, disastrous impact on uh, on on British life right now. Yeah. Would you would you say that that was fueled by the same forces of short termism, of incompetence, of uh, sort of dysfunctional systems that? Uh, helped Britain sort of provoke these these other crises definitely but I think there's there's another there's another factor which which we have touched on which is really important which is this um you know uh, superiority complex or a sort of mm. hubristic so the 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 way that brexit uh you know has perhaps some overlap with Hellman is this belief that we're Britain and we can do this you know that we're mm. we're, we're too big for the EU uh, we 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 we're a global Britain. You know, these are all these sort of empty slogans that we've all heard. But but ultimately, you know, what what Brexit was was a belief that a medium-sized country uh, with 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 very strong trading relationships with its immediate neighbours could rewrite those those basic rules of economics and and do its own thing in a completely different way. And of course. You know, we're all witnessing now the the, the problems with it. That without even, you know, that there are the technical issues of the Northern Ireland uh, Protocol, which which again are very particular to the very unusual status of Northern Ireland, the Republic of Ireland. But again, that you know, it's not that anyone w- was surprised to discover that we had a complicated relationship with with um, with Ireland in in our history. So so I think yes, the the combination of this of a sort of incompetence, lack of forward planning, but also you combine that with a with an overblown belief in your own capabilities, and and of course we it you know it's um it's easy now to sort of find all the statements given by those who are arguing in favour of Brexit, saying this is how it's going to be brilliant and and this is why what what wh- why it's going to work out. But it's I think it's important that we do continue to do that because that part of the purpose of writing this book for me was to try to get people to focus in a more kind of practical and realistic way about what our country can do, mm. rather than this sort of overblown, world-beating, global Britain, all that sort of stuff that we keep hearing. Yeah. One thing that comes across, um, I think, once we get to the, the sort of the Brexit section, a chapter of the book, which, which, is, which comes towards the end, once we have gone through these crises and we've seen how uh, interlinked everything is and how, yeah. in many ways, the British economy is... Uh, a political system is dependent on these, you know, these 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 relationships with with both uh, sort of allies and, and and non-allies. Is suddenly how vulnerable a Brexited Britain seems to be to uh, the influence of larger countries. Absolutely, and and again, 
Um, you know, the part of the, the difficulty here is that we we don't uh, we don't want to admit that uh, Europe in any way made us stronger or more secure. You know, one of the the ways in which over decades the the framing of Britain and its approach to Europe, Europe is full of small and and badly organized countries that bring us problems, and they might be nice to visit and go on holiday, and and you know there may be immigrants who are who are quite you know jolly people who who come and work in our shops and so on. But we 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 haven't really grappled with the reality that by being in the EU we were more secure, we we had a stronger economy, we had. Uh, much, uh, much more kind of settled arrangements, both geopolitically and and in and in terms of our our trading relationships. Um, but but you know the harsh reality of that is is now being seen, of course, in 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 all manner of ways. Um, you know whether it's the the practical stuff about our economy being having fallen further and is climbing back more slowly than others. Um, in the after, uh, aftermath of the of the pandemic, but also uh, things like when you see that a major war unfolds in Europe, um, at a moment like that, we still have no uh, functional relationship with the European Union on matters of sort of security and geopolitics, and that just seems to me to be quite bizarre when there's a major land war unfolding on the European continent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Although I guess one of the ironies as well is since the departure of uh, Britain from the European Union, in a way that has kind of allowed Europe in certain ways anyway, to become sort of more flexible and dynamic and proactive and uh, sort of effective in a way that it perhaps couldn't be with uh, with Britain as a member, as much as I regret to say that. No, I think that's correct. And and in fact, as, as I say in the book, I, I don't believe that Britain will rejoin the EU, although I'm mm. well aware that lots of people who who are politically probably in a similar place to me, would love that to happen. But one of the reasons is that uh, Europe, whilst it, it definitely regretted the departure of a major powerful uh, and wealthy country, uh, it also can reach decisions more quickly. De- major decisions, if we think about during the pandemic, mm-hmm. the sort of collectivised uh, economic uh, aid, and then uh, post-pandemic, the, the major decisions on on sort of security uh, responses to, uh, to to the Ukraine crisis those are things it is it is always much easier for Europe to do without Britain in inside the tent mm. before um, before we finish I would like to f- uh, conclude the conversation where more or less you conclude the book, which is a kind of a little bit of a reflection on where we go from here and in a sense that's not the sort of the the fundamental point of the of the book. I think it's sort of, it, it feels like it functions much more to kind of generate an understanding of, of the situation rather than to sort of provide any sort of snap conclusions mm. about what, um, what, uh, what Britain should do now. But you do make a, a, a few um, interesting points. One of which you, you refer to uh, Britain as an important but declining country. Yes. And it struck me that that adjective declining, um, I mean, you know, most, let's say, uh, <laughs> mainstream uh, newspapers would probably sort of roast you for that. Like the idea yeah. that sort of, oh, how dare you refer to the country as declining. But from a kind of global, historical, economic point of view, that's not necessarily a judgment, right? That's uh, that's an analysis. And it feels in a way, if, we, if Britain is going to constantly push against the tide and constantly deny its changing position in the world, it will find it harder to 
to return to some sort of equilibrium. I think that's right. I think you know the 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 realization uh, that you are not what you once were um, may be for some people quite difficult. But as as you say, it's it's a it's just a bold statement of fact, and you can look at any number of economic indicators. Uh, you know, political indicators, military indicators, all, all kinds of things that, that point to this. Um, and, um, and you know, there is, there's, there, on a slightly sort of um, superficial level, uh, if you look around Europe, um, not every country, but a lot of countries in Europe have had a moment of being the world's most important country, mm-hmm. particularly Spain, France, Germany, uh, but even, you know, Sweden and the Netherlands at different times have been arguably, you know, if maybe not the world's most important company, country, certainly Europe's most important country mm-hmm. at a certain point in time. Um, and so, again, it, it doesn't you don't it is not embracing decline and 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 a sort of um, a kind of pessimistic uh, admission of defeat to, to, to recognize that, that there's a certain trajectory. And then the question is, you know, what are we doing about it? And, and is it in the interests of our population? And I think those kinds of very simple questions are ones that our politicians don't really like to answer. Mm-hmm. There's, there's also the question of, um, as you say, whether power and influence in the world are desirable in themselves. And again, that strikes me as something which in, in a weird kind of way, I suspect politicians would, journalists would probably find quite hard to hear, but mm. I suspect would actually be relatively well received by the British public. Like I'm not, I'm not entirely convinced that there would be, um, yeah, the, the, the British public are committed to this idea of Britain being a sort of an, uh, an important interventionist country on the world stage particularly, as you point out, if there's no evidence that that has materially improved the lives of them and their families. Absolutely. And, 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 and you know, I'm, I'm glad you noticed that because I've always felt it quite strongly. And I think for people who've worked in foreign policy, uh, I think a lot of people don't see it this way. That in, Clearly, if you're working in a foreign ministry or in maybe in the military or something like that, you probably want to think that your country is a important country that can make a difference and mm-hmm. i can i can understand why that would be but my my rather simpler point is that the things that people want you know good education healthcare a, a level of economic um security uh the the, the countries that have succeeded in giving the most of that to their population tend not to be very powerful countries mm-hmm. you know it, it, you it, you tend to find its countries in, in Northwest Europe, if it just on a whole set, again, of, of data that is quite hard to dismiss, uh, none of those countries are necessarily sort of geopolitically uh, hugely significant. But the population, are, you know, if, if you're a person in Denmark or the Netherlands or Canada, I don't, I would be surprised if you, you wish for your country to be seen as a global power. Uh, you probably wish for your country to be stable, secure and prosperous. And that's what I think most British people will want. But of course, if you're a prime minister, no, you want to be a global power. You know, you you want to bestride the world. And perhaps particularly if the prime minister, as we currently have, is someone who who as a child admitted that he wanted to be world king? That's probably well, a bit well, of an yeah. indicator. <laughs> it really puts me in mind. Recently at the um, at the bookshop, we've been celebrating the centenary of um, James Joyce's Ulysses. Yeah. Um, and as a result, of ha- I've had contact with uh, various Irish embassies and uh, you know cultural attaches, whether yeah. in London or in in Paris and or in, in Dublin as well. And obviously, you know, Ireland is a is a smaller country population wise, mm. has a very distinct history, but. 
it really did strike me as quite sort of stark the difference in how a sort of a a, a sort of a, a pride in one's country and heritage yeah. and influence can be um used for diplomatic reasons i yes. mean there's no yes. question that this you know this cent- the centenary of this great novel has been used diplomatically by the right. irish state but in a way that seems so alien to somebody coming from a sort of the, the I guess the, the sort of the the pomp of the yeah. of the British approach. Yes, definitely. And so, I mean, one of the things I say right at the end of the book is about this idea of you know possibly whether Britain is itself coming to an end. You know, with with the idea of Scottish independence and and possibly unification of Ireland, so that Northern Ireland would then be part of the Republic. And again, I. I think most most of the time in, in, in our sort of public discourse in Britain, we talk about that as if it's a dismemberment, as if it, mm-hmm. um, you know, it, it's sort of like having your, your leg cut off or whatever. But but if it results in countries, I'm not saying I, I know that this would be the case, but if it results in countries that are more prosperous, more at ease with themselves uh, and and better able to focus on the needs of the population, I don't particularly see that. As there, as therefore being, you know, a, a big tragedy. But, but of course, if if your perception of Britain is, you know, we're a world power, we we have to be something on the world stage. Then clearly, the breakup of that is is a tragic, uh, you know, crisis, crisis or cataclysm. Mm. Well, that feels like the the perfect place on which to to leave it. Um, How Britain broke the world: War, Greed, and Blunders from Kosovo to Afghanistan is, of course, available from Shakespeare and Company from the bricks and mortar store also from our online store or from your local independent bookstore uh, wherever that may be uh, all that remains me to say is arthur snell thank you so much for joining us today well thank you as i mentioned just before we started recording this has been the first uh, time i've had a chance to talk at length about the book and it's been a wonderful experience thank you oh, thank you so much thank you for listening to the shakespeare and company podcast if you've enjoyed this conversation, it would be great if you could help us spread the word by reviewing or rating us in your favourite app, or just by sending the link to some of your friends. And don't forget, if you'd like even more from Shakespeare and Company, you can subscribe now through Apple or Patreon for just three euros a month. Production of this podcast is all done in-house here at Shakespeare and Company Paris. All music is by our resident jazz supremo, Alex Fryman, whose album Play It Gentle is available to buy or stream wherever you listen. I'll be back soon. Until then... Take care and thanks again for listening.